You are listening to a Laison Lumineur podcast. Hello, this is Sandra Hindman, founder and president of Laison Lumineur. We specialize in manuscripts, miniatures, historic jewelry, and other small-scale works of art from the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. This occasional series records our lectures and gallery talks, insights from new publications, and interviews with collectors and scholars. Our aim is to offer an ever-wider public tools for learning about the diversity of our activities and the breadth of our interests. Welcome, and please enjoy today's podcast. We are at the exhibition of Benjamin Zucker's collection of diamonds. So let me start. Um, Benjamin is here next to me. And I thought that we could start by perhaps, Benjamin, you could tell us a little about your background and the legacy of your family and your education in terms of how you became interested in diamonds. There you are as a 33-year-old in a picture in the gallery. In case you didn't know that that was Benjamin, there he is again. Um, so. Right. Um, so the backstory for being 33 and being in uh, Thailand and looking at a piece of sapphire rough was that uh, my grandfather had been a rabbi and a great diamond dealer, an expert on rough diamonds before they're cut in Antwerp in the 1910s and 1920s. And my uncles had all been in the diamond trade and uh, my dad was in the jewelry business and it was kind of a, a family business. But I had a different plan for myself. Basically, I didn't want to work at all. I thought maybe <laughs> I could just continue on and study so I went to Yale and I went to Harvard Law School and uh, after Harvard Law School, my Irish-American roommate convinced me, well, you should study Irish literature. So I studied Irish literature at NYU and um, things were going fine. But at a certain point, I realized that I wasn't writing the great American novel and I was living in the village with my wife and my daughter. And at a certain point, my dad said to me, what about going into the jewelry business? So I was horrified and I said, well, Dad, I want to be a writer. So he said, well, you could write about jewelry. And before I knew it, I said, well, I'll only work one day a week. And then he said, fine, on Monday, why don't you go to India? And he was really a very, my father, Charles Zucker, was a very wise man. So I found myself on the plane and I found myself in Jaipur and I found myself looking at, um, I went with the buyer for our firm, and looking at a long queue of people who were showing colored stones and diamonds, and the heat and the light um, were so both exhilarating and oppressive that I thought this is a completely different experience than one would ever have in anything else. And there I was in the East, and eventually it was, it, it worked out pretty well because I wrote a lot of books about jewelry and have really enjoyed myself. Thank you, yes. Um, anyone who hasn't read the introduction that Benjamin wrote on My Diamond Life to the Diamond Book, a summary of it is in the other room where he starts, was I going mad? <laughs> um, 
anyway, so I, I thought we could turn to, it's sort of chronologically here, how you began to collect. We have 35 of your beautiful diamonds here, and I know you've talked about building what you call a musée imaginaire. So maybe you could take us from that day in Jaipur to putting together this collection. Well, when, when you go back to the Rambach Palace Hotel in Jaipur and having spent 10 hours looking at gems, and it is so amazing, you kind of say to yourself, is this real? And I got to be very interested in how the gem trade really started. And I thought to myself, well, maybe I could start collecting uh, rings that had sapphires and rubies and emeralds and diamonds. And I would buy them slowly because we would go to uh, India and then we would go back through London, which at that time was a very big market for uh, antique jewelry. So and I'd stop off in London. I had some very good friends there. Um, and so I started to collect rings. But I quickly had this idea that rather than wait and find a ring, let's say, from the 14th century from England with a cabochon, a round-topped uh, ruby, um, I would look in all the books that had pictures of jewelry from uh, other collections, and then I'd have the double pleasure because I'd say, oh, someday I'm going to find this 16th century uh, sapphire with a flat top, a, a table cut. And so I had in my mind um, what I was hoping to find as opposed to searching. And um, so I was living night and day in this questionable area of um, realism, but I was enjoying it. And so I knew very soon on that as my uncles and my grandfather had been experts in different levels of diamond cutting, namely first, as I mentioned, the rough that was not cut. And then I had an uncle who was an expert on diamonds that were very thin, Hesher Gutworth, and were table cut or flat diamonds. And then I had another uncle who had discovered uh, from a Maharaja this wonderful blue diamond called the Wittelsbach diamond. So I thought, oh, I said, if I have the stages of diamond cutting, then I have these uh, four magical figures in my family, my uncles, in addition to my grandfather, in addition to my dad, um, and that the gems were, in a certain sense, a Proustian evocation of their lives also. And so from that point on, it really got to be incredible as slowly over a 40-year period, I found uh, a different, I mean, for example, this uh, uncut diamond ring um, from the 16th century from Venice. And one of the spectacular things is that these rings, which are very hard to look at because they're so small, then when you have them in a blow-up picture, and this is an extraordinary picture to me, and then they're in a book, so the combination of your eye actually seeing the ring, but really understanding it through the, uh, the picture as well as the book, and I've had these rings for 40, 45 years in many cases, I really started to understand the rings once Sandra bought them 
and put them in this incredible showcase as well as in a book. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the point cut and also, you know, your idea of these different stages of cutting. Because I wanted to ask you, um, it's a, obviously the collection has amazing quality, but it's also an unusually pedagogical collection. And so you already mentioned point cut and there's an octahedral diamond in the other room. I wonder if you could talk about um, building it up in these five stages of cutting, which is what we show here. Right, and the whole idea of diamond cutting is that you take an uncut crystal and then, which has, let's say, a double pyramidal form, and if you press it on um, a moving diamond wheel, you then get a flat top, which is called a table cut. Um, and what that means is, like it's an interesting moment in time where uh, in the Jewish traditional uh, reading of the Bible, the past week was the first chapter of Genesis and, and the Lord said, let there be light. And then in the second chapter, it's the story of Noah, where this wonderful rainbow uh, occurs to say to all of us that the world will not be destroyed. So the idea of diamonds really is the return of the white light to your eye, the brilliance, and then also by cutting the stones, you have prismatic colors that are freed up from within the diamond, and you can see the flashes of different colors, and if you look with great difficulty at this ring, you can, in the flesh, so to speak, you can also see that. And so from the time that there was the table cut, then there were more facets on um, the diamond, and there are these uh, Dutch uh, rose cuts. Now this piece was, um, and many of these rings were on display at the uh, Metropolitan uh, Museum of Art in the India department. And Sandra had uh, put this brooch, and after the podcast, you can come up and look at it, but they're all different colored um, diamonds, and a colored diamond is a diamond that has color similar to a, in, in many cases, similar to a colored stone, but it also has the brilliance of the diamond. So it has everything, so to speak. And again, you can see in this picture on the top, this fugitive green color. And when I found this piece, and this is excessively rare, maybe there are four or five 17th century pieces that have a mixture of colored diamonds. And one of them is the Dresden Green, which is in, in Germany, in Dresden. And in order to know whether a diamond is green, you examine it by spectroscope, and then you can tell how much uh, green there is and how much yellow there is and so forth. So I was very curious because the stone is set in a closed setting. So to find out, is this really a green diamond? Is there foiling in the back? Which there isn't foiling because you can tell through careful microscopic analysis. John King at the um, Gemological Institute said to me, well, we can do a precise spectroscopic reading if we open the prongs, take out the diamond, and then we'll know for sure. 
But then, as a collector, it's kind of sacrilegious to do that because then if you put it back, it's been tampered with, and then some person says, oh, you switched the diamond and the this and the that. But the Gemological Institute was able to put a spectroscope on the side of the diamond and ascertain the different colors, the pink and the brown and the lesser uh, green. And in the back, there's a hairpin which has the old European cut. And you can see a picture of that more precisely in this blown up picture. And, you know, speaking of the pictures, there's this uh, story about a grandmother who's walking down the street with her three grandsons. And the neighbor sees the grandmother and says, oh, you've got such beautiful grandchildren. And the grandmother, without skipping a beat, says, that's nothing. You should see the pictures. And, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's so interesting to me to come to a place and at one shot, I see the book again that Sandra did, the blow up, and then the actual object. So your eye is really feasting on the different levels of the incredible ingenuity and the internal qualities of these stones. I think maybe you could tell us a little more about the bodkin because it has such a romantic history too. Not just the cut, but who it was made for, who gave it to her. It probably, if I understand you right, might not have left England if it were you know, on the market today. Today, right. Yeah, I mean, I walked in and uh, in London and I was handed this long, slender hair uh, piece and I could tell, you know, when, you know, it's, uh, I had once a professor, Harry Bober, at the Institute of Fine Arts, and he said, you know, when you examine a piece, you know, you look at it with your loop, and then if you want to appear like you're a real expert, you go, hmm, hmm, hmm. But if you want to appear like you're like a real super worldwide expert, you say, yeah, 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 like that. It's a German expert. So, um, so I take out my loop, and I look at the piece, and I'm looking, and I'm looking, and then I turn it over. And another one of Harry Bober's lessons to me. And on the back it says, gift of Charles II and to Nell Gwynn. So the idea that here was a royal gift of Charles II to his mistress, Nell Gwynn, and it's datable to, I think it's the 1660s if I'm not mistaken, so that you would know, because diamonds are not signed and you don't know who cut them and you certainly don't know when they were cut, even though you can tell an idea about the cutting uh, from the style because you would know that this is uh, generally speaking much earlier than the 15th or 16th century and this goes on through the 16th and 17th century. So I said, wait a second, you know, because there's always a, like how can it be that, you know, I'm being offered this royal jewel? It's like, this can't be. <laughs> so I said to the dealer, I mean, what is this? This is, this is from Charles II? He said, yes, he says, um, the Duke of St. Albans, the seventh Duke, came in. He had this collection of uh, rings and brooches from his family, and he decided to part with them, and then he had a little smile, and then you knew this was the terrible, fateful moment because this thing's going to cost a huge arm and a leg. And one of the problems in collecting, it's akin to 
in a certain sense, passion or madness. So I said, oh, and I had always not really bargained when I bought things because I figured if I didn't bargain, then I'd buy, but there'd be a steady playing field, so to speak. And if you say, oh, I want 20% off, and the guy said, no, you know, so they, next time around, there's always the 20% built in. So he quotes me a price, which was crazy for me, and crazy expensive, and I then suddenly realized that my father had always taught me that, and I was a stamp collector when I was young, so he always said, buy two copies of all the stamps that you buy, and that one day you maybe want to trade one of the stamps for another stamp that you want to buy. And this was extremely prescient. I realized that I had this uh, Renaissance jewel that I knew they wanted. And so I said, well, I mean, I can't afford that, but I could either pay very slowly or I would put in the Renaissance jewel. So not, they didn't mince words. They said, well, if you top it up a little bit, you know. So then that's how I got that. And in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, they put that jewel next to a miniature, uh, an Islamic miniature from uh, South India, and it was a picture of Charles II. So these rings have also been, in a certain sense, a key to the treasures of the historical experience. Thank you. I, I thought, you know, we have quotes by you on the wall, and maybe they're self-evident from what you've talked about, but I wonder, diamonds will always be a magical window facing the invisible world. What, what do you mean by that? Can you elaborate for us? Well, uh, I would say that first of all, the idea of a magical window, is the window real? I mean, my brother-in-law, Lenny Mindich, who's here, has a great respect for, and he's a scientist, for what is reality. So the question is, are we living in a world that there is a magical window? And can you look through that window at the <coughs> invisible world? Now, the degrees of visibility keep expanding, and you can get down to the atomic structure, and even subatomic structure. So to me, a diamond, which is thrown up from the center of the Earth, under high pressure, and let's say sometimes a diamond might have an olivine crystal showing characteristics of how it crystallized. And this I know because when I decided to go into the business, my dad said, oh, and my sister Margot is also here, uh, my dad says, well, you should study with uh, Margot at the Gemological Institute of America. So rather than right away go into the trade for six months, and she's like brilliant. So I was like so whacked out with, you know, checking what was in the, uh, in the microscope and nervous as anything, and she like steadied me. Then we'd both go home and Lenny would uh, help us with our homework. Um, <laughs> But the teachers knew and they said, okay. So um, the idea that you would be looking at a diamond, either through a jeweler's loop, and you would see the characteristics of its crystallization. So I really feel that these diamonds literally are a idea of the invisible world and of the spiritual world of stone. Great. Um 
I, I probably everyone always asks you because everyone always asks me too. What are your favorites? Do you have a favorite in the collection? Do you have three favorites? Have your favorites changed over the years? I wonder if you could comment on that. Uh, yeah. Um, well, in 1960, when I was when I was way past the 20s, when you know I started to dream about a novel, um, I had the good luck to have my first novel called Blue published. And before that, I had written some books on how you look at a diamond, how you judge colored stone. And so suddenly I had the idea to have what I call a Talmudic diamond, where you have the story in the center on the left, and then around it are commentaries. So like, I'm here tonight, but each of you have your stories. And they are all in your heads, and they are taking part in the same speech that I'm giving. And then on this side, I would have a picture of a work of art. And in my very first book, Blue, sure enough, I had one of my really favorite rings, which was uh, this ring, and uh, the Venetian 16th century ring. I worked it into the novel because one of the characters in the novel is a gem dealer. And the other character is his brother, who doesn't want to work, but is Mr. Busybody, and he's always telling his, the brother who's working what he should do in the trade and so forth. And this ring fits into the plot. So here, in a certain sense, in the year 2000, the first book was uh, published when I was 60 years old, and the characters, so to speak, the art characters in the book were many of these rings, which I interwove. So I would say that it's a fantastic, just, I can't believe it's really happened to me that here's the picture of this ring and it goes back to the year 2000 when I used it in the novel and then in the second novel, uh, White, and in the third novel, Green, th these, car these rings reappeared. So that would certainly be one of the, uh, of the great, great favorites. Well, I want there to be time to um, interact with you and ask questions, but I do have a, a last um, question. Uh, has it been a, a difficult and um, even an emotional experience to part with these rings? It's like parting with 45 years of your life. Or has it not been? How, how do you feel about that? Well, my wife is a psychotherapist, and uh, <laughs> she's been She's a, already asked you this. She, it is, she hasn't asked me this, but you know, what she does is she doesn't ask the question, but the combination, and also my high school prom date, with the combination of um, like not asking, but looking, and you know, before you know it, you're blurting out what you think is a normal answer to an unasked question. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, I would say that, well, first of all, if I were more normal, I would say, gee, you own these rings, and now they're no longer yours. But um, on a deeper level, at the beginning, I just, you know, I had the rings, but I basically had hidden them in a drawer. And then when I got a bit more mature, um, I had them in the apartment hidden under underwear. Um, <laughs> but then I realized this is not so, this is not the best security arrangement. So I was able, in 1984 to get them on display, many of them, at the Walters Art Gallery. So then I didn't have the rings, 
they were in a museum. But I could go to Baltimore and see them there. And then at a certain point, they went on display in other places. And then finally, here they are, but they're in a book, which is, and they will be on, I'm sure, at some point on the internet. So they actually, ownership, I mean, anybody who's lived in a house that's uh, 100 years old or more, you're just a denizen in a certain point of time. What will happen to these rings? So I don't, I mean, it's actually, I feel closer to them than ever. Now, my wife does say that I always try to see the most positive in every single situation. What a maybe, good characteristic. I think so. I mean, maybe, in fact, I'm fooling myself. But it's early days, and uh, so far it's been one of the most exhilarating experiences of my life. Maybe you'll build another collection of 35 incredible Renaissance rings. Do you think that's even possible? Uh, not that you would want it to, would but not, whether you could it would do not be, whether it would It would not be possible because you've discovered through your research, I mean, the heart of the book is, and, and you as a longtime professor, you took each of, you take each of these works of art um, and you've written different books about different types of objects, and then you compare them to similar objects or different objects in a museum, let's say. And each one of these really great rings that I've had, you've been able to trace back to historic collections of jewelry. Now, each year, those collections have been scattered, and what was available in great numbers in the 60s was in much fewer numbers in the 70s and much fewer numbers in the 80s. These great collections of 1880, the GU, uh, the Harari collection. So they will not come again. Uh, so I could never form this collection again today. Thank you. Uh, so this is a very special experience to hear Benjamin talk about them in the very room where they are all displayed. And I'm sure his talk here has raised questions and, and observations and thoughts by you. And we want to give you a chance to interact with Benjamin and ask any questions that you might have. Can I follow up on what you just asked? How did you decide it was time to part with them and put them together? Good question. In some other place and not with you. Uh, when I first met Sandra, she was having a show in the armory. I saw this wonderful ring and uh, it was a very thin, flat table cut. It was from the 16th century, and it was marked Antwerp, 16th century. And I said, oh, this is so interesting. And I said, uh, how do you know it's from Antwerp? And quick, like a magician, out came this picture of a painting which had the, a ring that was exceedingly similar. But she's such a precise person, so she didn't say, oh, that's the ring. But I thought to myself, oh my God, this is the perfect person for me to buy from. She knows, you know, it's like a course. So then I ended up uh, selling to her a different series of rings, and she published a book. So then I thought to myself, well, 79, it's not a young kid, and it's not, you know, but um, I thought now would be a great time to memorialize it so forth. So it was just, it's been perfect for me.
Other questions, comments? Yes. Um, is there any piece in your like a career lifetime that you regret you didn't get or you couldn't get? Uh, I was told that if you have a piece uh, with a fleur-de-lis, either a uh, manuscript or a ring, or that's a sign that had a royal history. And I had this marvelous ring of a fleur-de-lis. And then I went to a dealer, and he had an object that was an example of Judaica with the leaders of the Frankfurt Jewish community from the late 1700s up till the middle 1800s. And it was a whole history of philanthropy. And on the run, one of the rondelles was a Rothschild, uh, Meyer Amschel Rothschild. And I thought to myself, if I buy this, this would be, I mean, just fantastic to learn about uh, the Rothschild family, the great collectors and, you know, extraordinary family. So I swapped my fleur-de-lis for the other piece. And then I said, you know, later on, well, how can I, you know, and then I said, well, I mean, this is so crazy. I mean, these rings or these objects of art are really meant to be opening of doors. So, you know, I regret the ring, but I love the other object. How did they cut the originals so that when they were bipyramidal and then they decided to do tape, what kind of tools did they actually have that long ago to actually cut them? Yeah, they had, it's a good question. They had a moving wheel and they put a kind of a paste of diamond slurry on the wheel and then you take the diamond and you're not actually cutting it, you're grinding it down. And so you're pressing against the moving wheel. And as the centuries went on, the wheel went faster and faster and so the, the degree of surface polish changed. Uh, so, and that's one of the ways you can tell from a much older diamond ring. That's how the diamond, and the, the wheels, as you might imagine in India, were slower in the 16th century, and the type of cutting they did was quite different from Holland or from Antwerp or from England. And were the original cuts to capture more light or to, to get rid of areas that weren't quite that flaws in it? Uh, both, both, both. And for example, my grandfather's skill was he would hold up the um, uh, uncut diamond crystal and he could envision, which is a very, uh, it's a question of spatial imagination, that it could be cut into, let's say, three diamonds, one very small one without any black carbon spots, another one that was larger, and maybe a third that might have a tinge of color in the crystal. One of the things we didn't say when we were talking about cuts, if I understand this correctly, is these earlier cuts are so rare, partly because in the late 16th and especially 17th and 18th century, people took their diamonds in to be recut. Oh, I have a table cut. No, no, no. Now it's all the mode to have a rose or a brilliant. And we have documents that actually um, record this happening. So we know that people had their earlier cuts recut. So I think that it's worth remembering that as we look at the very, very early ones, um, they are extraordinarily rare. I wanted to ask you a question. I mean, you're also so well known as a dealer in medieval manuscripts. So 
when you look at a manuscript, is it different pair of eyes than you're looking at an antique ring? How do you uh, talk about that sensibility? Well, of course, historically, the context um, comes up differently. You look at a, a, a ring and um, in addition to seeing the color and the stones and everything, it, it recalls other rings of that type in other museums. If you look at a manuscript, it's you recall other manuscripts in other museums. But I really do think a lot of people ask me, why rings, why jewelry, you're a manuscript dealer. But I really do think that the objects are not so dissimilar. They're both intimate, they both involve um, tactility, they both they involve many of the same materials, gold and lapis, precious stones. Um, they reflect light in similar ways. Benjamin talks about light in diamonds and precious stones, but there are similar light manuscripts. It's called manuscript illumination, which is about light just as the diamonds are about light. So I don't know if that answers your question. No, it but, does. Um, and, and when you mention, let's say, lapis in a manuscript, or you get a medieval ring of lapis, and then you realize that this lapis came from Afghanistan, and it came from a mountain often tens of thousands of feet high, and you've got to go up that thin defile, and then you can only get the lapis in a certain season, and you heat the side of the mountain with a flame, and meanwhile you fall over, that's it. And so the whole process of getting the lapis and bringing it back to Alexandria or bringing it back to Paris uh, is so stunning to me that you can find a ring that has lapis in it in the, from the 15th century. And then remember that probably the same purveyors handled stones for artisans of different crafts. Very recently, for example, it's been shown from chemical analysis that manuscripts that were long thought to be made in Venice are in fact made with the same crystals of blue that Murano glass on the island in Venice are made. So these glass makers and illuminators are buying their blue pigment from the same person. Uh, yeah, and I, oh, Lenny? Where, where do diamonds come from and are they different in different places? Uh, that's a great question. They, the diamonds from the, before the uh, 1800s came from India. There were few from Borneo, but the vast one, the vast majority were from India. And there were certain area and possible mines, which are today called as a shorthand form, Golconda. And they tended to be whiter than diamonds, let's say, from South Africa. And they tended to have sometimes what's described as a haziness. And they had so little nitrogen in them that they're often called uh, type 2A uh, diamonds, that the GIA says it has uh, such an infinitesimally small amount of nitrogen atoms. So all of the diamonds in this room were from India. And that was the reason why the Metropolitan Museum of Art and indeed the Houston Museum of Art, maybe four or five years ago, wanted to show these, some of these rings in the India department. So again, sitting as I would in New York and having a ring in my hand 
let's say, that has the five uncut diamond crystals, and knowing that a Venetian jeweler in the 16th century must have had an enormous stock of Indian diamonds that went all across from India to Venice. I mean, a huge uh, journey in that days. So I could envision simultaneously the jeweler, the traveler who brought it across, the person who put the ring, uh, the, the, the stones in a ring. And in the book, there are different angles that the ring is examined. There may be six different angles. So what makes jewelry so extraordinary is that your eye is always moving. The person who's wearing it is brilliant in a certain sense like the ring. And from each angle, it's almost a different object. This has been a Laison Lumiere podcast. We are exhibiting next at Fine Arts Paris between November 13th and 17th in the Carousel du Louvre. I'll see you there. You can reach us online through our website, laisonlumiere.com, or through Twitter and Instagram at laisonlumiere. You are always welcome to visit one of our galleries in New York, Chicago, or Paris during our exhibitions or to make an appointment with one of our specialists. Thanks for listening.